1: The pandemic has been hard on everyone, but for children, it's catastrophic. In Hillsborough County, advocates worry about 300 children of migrant farm workers who haven't surfaced in the past year. Carol Mayo is in charge of the county's Migrant Education Program.
2: I think it's a community's responsibility to ensure that we welcome any student, regardless of whether they're documented or undocumented. And just, just for the record, I don't know. That's not something we ever ask. It's none of my business. It should be nobody's
3: business, whether a child is documented or undocumented.
1: Mayo spoke with my colleague, Carrie Sheridan, for the class of COVID-19. Reporters at public radio stations across Florida are looking at the pandemic's effect on disadvantaged children. And On this week's show, I talked to Carrie about the project. And Joining us is Jessica Bakeman, a reporter and editor at WLRN in Miami.
0: Jessica, I will start with you. There are so many stories that you could tell about the pandemic's impact on children and on schooling and education. How did you kind of come to, the, to the, the focus that you did with this series of stories?
3: Well, we really wanted to look at how the pandemic was affecting education for the most vulnerable students in Florida. So these are groups of students that, you know, as education reporters, we know have been struggling for a very long time and they're already up against really great odds. Then you put a pandemic on top of that. And unfortunately the way that the pandemic has played out, it has, you know, there are many people who are pretty comfortable and are able to kind of get by, you know, they maybe are able to work from home. They haven't lost their jobs. Um, But then there are, are people who've just been hit hard by sickness, by unemployment, you know, all of those things are compounding to just create this crisis situation.
0: Carrie, your story was one that you actually started reporting before the pandemic about the children of migrant farm workers in the Tampa area. How did the, the onset of the pandemic change the focus of what you were working on?
2: Well, That project started in 2019, really, when an editor on the NPR education desk asked uh, member reporters in a weekly call that we have how some of the Trump administration policies of, you know, stricter immigration policies might be trickling down to be affecting children in education. So I got to know these women, you know, way before the pandemic, and I wrote along with them and I saw the kind of work that they did. And what they do is, you know, they're looking for children of farm workers to enroll in school, but they're trying to gain the trust of their parents as well. And when you have a political environment where um, there's so much fear of deportation or of being separated from your family, if you're caught and you're here without papers, uh, it makes their job really hard. But one of the things I really found interesting about them is their ability to just strike up a conversation about almost anything, it could be flowers in the driveway, it could be pets, it could be the color of your sweater, you know, um, they find a way to connect with the people that they're talking to. And through that in person conversation, they gain trust. So that what the pandemic did was it really took away that ability for them to see people in, in front of their faces and hear their voices and sense that this is going to be okay for you. If you enroll your child in school, you won't get in trouble. It's not going to lead to your deportation. It's actually the law. That you put your kids in school until they're 16 in this country. So it really made work hard for them. They had to rely on cell phones, WhatsApp, and messages to reach people, which really wasn't as effective.
0: Yeah. And it's like kind of the common theme throughout this series is these are all things that were problems before the pandemic and COVID-19 and social isolation and homeschooling, all of that kind of makes them makes them worse and kind of elevates these problems into more serious issues.
2: That's right. I mean, you know, the numbers of children in the migrant education program in Hillsborough County have been going down for the past five years. Children are just becoming harder to find. So when we looked at the numbers comparing this January to last January, they were down again, and they were down even further than expected. So, it's always hard to pinpoint exactly what the causes are. There are a lot of different reasons why children are becoming harder to find. Sometimes it's their parents um, stop moving, they may work in construction or something. Sometimes it's just that parents don't want to sign their kids up and they're not there. So, um, when you look at it from that perspective, you can see the trend was already going down, but then it took a bigger dive downward. And especially for the high school children, the children who are teenagers. When they face this kind of economic need, they will go to work in the fields or they'll take a job instead of finishing school. Jessica, you wanted to jump in
3: here? Yeah, I was just going to jump in and say um, I think a a big takeaway from this project, and Carrie's talked about it a little bit, but it certainly applies with the other stories in the series as well, is that there are a lot of um, policy issues that policymakers don 't tend to think have anything to do with education, like immigration is a great example, or transportation, affordable housing, access to health care, mental health care, technology. All of those things, you know, are maybe tangentially related to education. You know, like in Carrie's story, you know, the social workers or the the recruiters that she spoke to from the migrant education program talk about how, you know, a lot of um, migrant farm workers don't have health insurance. And so if there is illness in their family, you know, they have to stand in line at the Department of Health to get their kids seen and They used to be able to get, you know, rides to the doctor's office from people who work at the school district, but now they're not able to do that because of the coronavirus, right? So it's like if you have a kid who's sick and they can't go to school because they can't go to the doctor, the fact that they don't have access to transportation or they don't have access to healthcare directly affects their ability to be successful in school.
0: So, Jessica, how have school districts in Florida tried to try to adapt and find solutions to some of these issues? In particular, I'm thinking of the story from the keys from Monroe County. A lot of different school districts were scrambling in terms of providing meals to kids. And uh, Monroe County actually came up with a system that might be something that that lasts after the pandemic's under control.
3: Yeah, so um, their story that you're thinking of uh, was reported by my colleague, Nan Klingener at WLRN. She reports from what we like to call the southernmost bureau uh, in Key West. And um, th- what's interesting about the Keys, obviously, it's an island chain. It's, uh, it's 16 schools spread out over 106 miles. So when you have a situation where, um, you know, most school districts last March, when schools first closed, the first thought was, how are we going to feed children? Because we live in a society where so many children depend on school in order to get food. And they're getting not just lunch, breakfast, lunch, often snacks that have the caloric uh, value of a dinner. Um, in hopes that maybe that child will have dinner when they go home. But if they don't, they're still getting enough nutrition. So in a place like the Florida Keys, um, if you know, the school where they're doing the meal distribution is on another island, and it's hard for me to get there, maybe I'm not able to get there to get the food that I need for my kids. So what the school district started doing early on was actually delivering meals along the school bus route they already had the school bus route infrastructure in place so that they could get to all those homes to pick up the students and bring them to school. So why not bring them food that way? Now they're um, packing up uh, backpacks full of food and sending them home with kids and really loading them up on the weekends, loading them up on holidays when they're just trying to get uh, a kid, you know, enough food to get through from right now to the next time you're going to be in school. And if, and if you think back to the response early on, you know, the kind of the first two things that school districts were thinking about was food and technology. In in some ways, it feels like we kind of never moved beyond those initial stopgap measures of just like how do we uh, meet people's basic needs because we're still trying to figure out how to get laptops to kids. We're still trying to figure out how to get food to them. And now we're a year into this and we're seeing virtual learning It's just really not working for for a whole lot of students. And we're looking at a mental health crisis and certainly an educational crisis going into the future.
0: Carrie, how have you seen that dynamic kind of play out with uh, with the migrant families that you've been following, you know, trying to come up with these stopgap solutions? And then we don't really move beyond that because school districts, organizations that serve these communities, they don't have the resources uh, to do this kind of work.
2: Yeah, it's, it's very hard for the families that I met, you know, they are living really day to day, they don't know how much money they'll make from day to day. You know, one of the farm worker dads that I talked to said, you know, some days he might make $50, some days 100. But there are a lot of days when they don't make anything for any variety of reasons, like work stops in the field, the price of the crop goes down, Um, they live with a level of instability that I think many of us can't imagine. And some of the solutions that, you know, could be derived for them, I I don't see any of them really coming to fruition at any point, personally. But when one of the families that I visited was a a mother whose um, husband had recently been deported. So when school had closed down and they went to remote learning, she was kind of able to stop work, kind of shepherd her four children through that online learning But now that he was gone, uh, she was alone and she was the sole breadwinner for the family. So she's facing a situation where her oldest son was about 15 and wanted to become the man of the house. He wanted to go to work and stop school. And, you know, she was just in tears over how do I keep them in school? How do I stay on track? You know, she didn't want that for her kids. She really wanted an education for her kids. And so if schools were to close again, she said she just didn't really know how she would manage. So solutions for things like that, there just aren't any as far as I can tell.
1: I'm Bradley George. You're listening to Florida Matters. Our guests this week are WUSF's Carrie Sheridan and Jessica Bakeman from WLRN in Miami. Our conversation continues in just a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. This week, we're talking about the class of COVID-19, a reporting project that examines the pandemic's impact on Florida's most vulnerable children. Our guests are WUSF reporter Carrie Sheridan and Jessica Bakeman, a reporter and editor at WLRN in Miami.
0: Jessica are political leaders at any level beyond, you know, the school systems or again these organizations that that work with these different communities paying any attention to to any of these issues and trying to find solutions?
3: Yes, of course uh, there is being attention paid to these issues, but if you think about the situation that Carrie just described and you multiply <laughs> multiply that by hundreds of thousands or millions, there's just so much crisis happening throughout the state that I think, you know, the nonprofit sector, the government sector, everyone is just stretched really thin. That's not to say that that there's no hope. Um, Obviously, there's an ongoing conversation happening at the federal level for additional aid. I think that school districts are pretty much counting on that at this point, that there will be you know, more aid. Um, school districts got some help from the federal CARES Act earlier in the pandemic, um, and a lot of that money went to to doing things like you know the laptops and standing up that infrastructure, and then beyond that, to try to make schools as safe as they can be in terms of having personal protective equipment for teachers, looking at you know air quality in schools. So all the money really has gone toward those things, and and that doesn't leave a whole lot. For kind of the material needs of the students and the families. And also if you think about like how we're going to need more teachers, if you're going to bring more students into schools, but we need to have them socially distanced. So you need more staff. Um, so the, the state legislature is going into session at the beginning of March, and they'll be talking about school funding. And one of the big um, conversations that's happening now that I think is pretty alarming and, and scary for school districts is that um, nearly 90,000 students throughout the state of Florida have sort of disappeared overnight from the, the public school roles. Um, there are some explanations for those. For for example, you know, some of them probably left their public school for a private school or started homeschooling and maybe didn't alert the school district, or maybe they moved um, out of state or out of county and, and the school district struggled to find them. Um, and there's also uh, situations where we know that, like pre K and kindergarten students aren't showing up because their parents are just like, you know what, let's just sit out a year, let's do kindergarten next year, or we can do kindergarten at home and send our kid to school for first grade. So those things are happening. But then there are also a lot of students who are just falling off the grid because the challenge of meeting the needs that their families have on a daily basis of just surviving have become so overwhelming that they can't fit school into that as well. But those enrollment drops have a really important and negative, um, Effect on the school districts because schools are funded based on enrollment. So if you lose 90,000 students, that's 90,000 students for whom school districts are no longer getting that funding at a time when they really need a lot more funding because they're dealing with unexpected costs and unprecedented costs.
0: Carrie, we, we heard a lot about that missing students issue here in Hillsborough County when uh, several months ago, Superintendent Addison Davis, I think, said at a school board meeting that there were, I forget the exact figure, but about 7,000-some students who just uh, disappeared from the rolls. Uh, I know most of them have been found, but there's still a large number of students in the Hillsborough County system who, who aren't accounted for.
2: That's right. We, we figured there are between, you know, 280 to 330 that are... Officially unaccounted for. Um, A lot of them chose homeschool in some capacity. But to get back to Jessica's point, it's true that for programs like the Migrant Education Program, they get federal funding, but it is dependent on how many children are in the program. So when they have fewer children, there's fewer dollars to help them. So, you know, a number of years ago, they had eight full time recruiters looking around for children, doing everything they can to help them get in school, and now they can only afford five. Um, but there's more work to be done. And one important thing I want to mention is that one of the inspiring things I think about this project was um, how many people are really in the corner of these children. You know, how many people are really working for them in kind of ways that may fly under the radar for a lot of people. But um, I was really amazed by how these women who work for the Migrant Education Program, they will do anything to help kids. I mean, they'll help them figure out their math homework. They'll drive them to the doctor. They'll bring them food. I mean, if you, I I laughed with one of the women I met, I said, are you always kind of thinking of problems and how to solve them? And we both laughed out loud because she said, yes, all the time, you know, they're real problem solvers and they really are working for the kids. And, you know, we met also a, a school resource officer in Dover who learned to speak a Mayan dialect so that he could talk to the children of farm workers and gain their trust. I mean, small things like that are really huge. And there are so many people who are working on behalf of kids, uh, despite a tough situation.
3: And those people that Carrie's mentioning are are really like on the front lines of doing this work of finding those missing children that you mentioned, like, um, you know, how you said that earlier on, it was thought that it was, you know, 7,000 students. And now we've narrowed that down to to 280 or whatever in in Hillsborough County, you know, something similar in Broward County, which is the second largest school district in the state, where at one point there were thousands of missing children. Now that's down to 800. And the reason that those numbers are getting smaller is because there are people out there every day doing the work of trying to find these kids and get them what they need to get back in school. One of the other stories in our series follows a social worker in Broward County as she goes door to door, trying to find families who may have moved they might be living somewhere else maybe their phone number got turned off somehow you know they lost contact with this family and she's like driving around Broward County um doing detective work which is something that carries uh sources who she talked to in Hillsborough said the same thing that they're doing this detective work trying to find these families and then in this particular case um this social worker from Broward County found um this family the mother's name is Maria and the daughter's name is Marjorie and um basically Maria had uh, been unemployed since the beginning of the pandemic. They hadn't had, they didn't have a laptop. They didn't have um, consistent access to internet. They had moved a couple of times and school just kind of, it just, it was, it was too hard to deal with all of that stuff and figure out how to stay, you know, active in virtual school from home. But this social worker, her name is Lilia Francois. She found them, she got, Marjorie a laptop. And even right away, like it's not like Marjorie just showed up in school the next day and everything was great. You know, Lilia had to keep going back to her, keep calling the mom, keep trying to figure out what problems are you experiencing that we can solve to get Marjorie back in school. And last we heard Marjorie was um, enrolled in a charter school that has a one-on-one instruction and also vocational training so that she can get her diploma and get some skills that will help her get a job. Um, But it's like, that's one day, maybe the next day something else changes in Marjorie's life, but like Lillia is still there trying to make that happen, you know? So it's like, that's where I think these are like, these are big ongoing problems that you, you don't fix by like one, one laptop distribution, you know? And so the, the people who are, the reason those numbers are getting smaller in terms of missing students is because of people like Lilia Francois, in Broward County, people like, Grace Rosa and Ines Cologne in Hillsborough County, who are literally knocking on doors, trying to find kids and help them get back in school.
0: One of the things that kind of stands out to me in the series is you, you realize how much school, you know, school's about education, but it's not just education because it provides all these other services for children. And when you take away school, then that's when children and families really start to fall through the cracks.
3: Yeah, and a really good example of that is students with disabilities. We have a couple of stories in the series looking at um, students with developmental disabilities and the specific challenges that they faced during the pandemic. So you know, for students with disabilities, school is a place where they get not only education or not only food, right? But also these critical therapies like speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, behavioral therapy, those things that help them overcome the challenges of their disabilities and learn how to move, how to speak, how to um, interact with other people in social situations. these kinds of skills that maybe a, a parent with a child who doesn't have a disability or a challenge like that might take for granted, but those are things that you know are daily struggles. and so in some of these stories we, we heard from parents who were. Having you know with their child at home, not only missing out on those therapies or were getting them but remotely in a way that was just not as effective, but they're also not socializing with their peers at school and that kind of isolation led them to you know basically stop communicating past their wants and needs and If you can put yourself in the the shoes of a mom who for years has been working to help their child be able to communicate with them and and joke with them and talk to them and relate to them and you know start to develop a a vision of what their future could look like and having like a real full, meaningful life. And then you start to see those things slip away because your child is not getting what they need. It's extremely alarming and scary. And uh, one thing that we found actually in the two different stories that we did about this was in both cases, what made a huge difference was being able to send occupational therapists and physical therapists to the homes of children to do their therapies with them at home while schools were closed. And obviously that's risky for the families because you're inviting someone you don't know into your home and it's risky for the therapist who has to be going into all these different families' homes not knowing what their situations are gonna be while this infectious disease is spreading. But these are the risks that you know people are taking because otherwise the losses are just unimaginable.
0: Carrie, how difficult was it for you to build trust with these migrant families that you talk to?
2: Well, I was lucky because um, I was always with the migrant education team when we would meet. And so they sort of uh, would vet the situation beforehand. They would talk to the family and let them know that I was following them to cover the work that they do and understand the challenges that farm workers face. And, you know, from that point, as long as we made clear, which we did, that if anyone who's undocumented, we won't use their name because we don't want to put them in jeopardy. It's really more important that we, we hear their voices, we understand what they go through, so that we can tell their stories without putting them in jeopardy. Um, and I didn't find it difficult at all. I don't speak fluent Spanish. I speak fluent French, but the migrant recruiters could translate for us. And then we had a staff member um, journalist look over the translations and check everything. And the language barrier wasn't a problem and gaining the trust of people to talk to us really ended up not being a problem. It's pretty fascinating window into what life is really like uh, when you don't have some of the trappings of things like health insurance or a steady job or the ability to drive around without being fearful of getting pulled over and losing everything that you've worked for. I mean, most of these families really just came here not intending to break the law or, or be illegal you know, they just wanted a better life. They wanted a chance. They need to make some money. They're, they're doing the best they can. And they really are almost every single person that I can think of told me it's really important that their children get an education. That's a key value for them. So um, they really appreciate the migrant education program and the help that it's given them when they move from state to state, when their kids need tutoring or, you know, just any kind of problem with paperwork that they have, something they don't understand. They get a lot of help with that.
3: I just wanted to add, I'm not sure if this has been Carrie's experience, Carrie, you've been a reporter a lot longer than I have, but um, I'm always amazed by how willing people are to share their stories with us. And, you know, I think a lot of times people, they just, they're surprised or they're pleased that someone cares and wants to listen. And I think in these situations in particular, I think that people understand the importance of getting this information out there. And that, you know, some statistic like 87,811 students are missing from Florida public school rolls may not be as evocative or as, you know, um, might not change someone's heart or someone's mind the way hearing the voice of a woman who, you know, her husband was just deported and she's been dealing with domestic violence at home and she has four children. She just wants to keep them in school and she's crying like, please help me, you know, hearing that story and and putting that in, in the frame of like a personal experience is so powerful for a lot of people. And so I think that's part of what we're trying to do here is like, we all know that all these problems are out there, but let's tell you a few stories of, of people who are living in our state on the edge. And hopefully it will have some influence over the decisions that policymakers make in the next several months and several years, as we try to figure out how to get ourselves out of this mess.
0: Having done all this this reporting, are there any any questions, anything that's just kind of left hanging that you' still curious for an answer for?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there there are stories that I learned about along the way that I really hope to follow up on. Um, one is for high school students who have to move from place to place. Often, they find it difficult to get into a school when they get later in their In their career, and sometimes they're encouraged to go to adult ed or to get a GED, and that really shouldn't be happening. I mean, the idea of the migrant education program—it's been around since 1966. It was created by an act of Congress, you know, to make sure that all children have a fair shot at at a public education. Um, And when our school systems start relying too much on test scores and various assessments of academic success um, as an indicator uh, that can sometimes push out these children who don't do as well in school, but you know, they deserve as much of a seat in the class as anybody
3: else. Um, There are always questions that (laughs) we want to keep reporting on and we certainly will. One thing I think that is maybe kind of the next phase of this experience that we're heading into of pandemic education is, you know, School reopenings are going to be happening a lot more across the country. Obviously in Florida, um, you know, we're one of the few places where schools have been open for a long time and there's not a whole lot of data yet, but what we do know so far is that schools have not been like super spreader events um, And the problem is that as more and more students return to school, then that's more bodies in the building and it's less opportunity for social distancing, which is raising anxiety levels for teachers and staff. And so um, making teachers or school staff a priority for vaccines is a policy that I think is getting a lot of um, traction in a lot of other places but not in Florida. So I think that's something that we'll be reporting on going into the future as well.
0: Well, Jessica and Carrie, uh, great work on this series. Thanks for joining us today to talk about it.
3: Thank you. Thanks,
2: Bradley. Thank you.
1: That was WLRN reporter and editor Jessica Bakeman and WUSF's Carrie Sheridan. You can find all the stories in the Class of COVID-19 series at classofcovid.org. That's classofcovid.org. That's our show for this week. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Bradley George. Thank you for listening
2: to Florida Matters. Hope you'll join us again next week.